right, everyone, welcome to the report. This is the second episode of Election Daily's uh, news show that I host every week to talk about elections and world events. This is a special episode because we're going to be focusing almost entirely on elections this episode. So we're going to start off tonight with a panel about the talking about the House of Representatives elections in 2018 or 2020, sorry. And we're going to be talking about the battleground and um, how it's looking for the Democrats and how, how it's looking for the Republicans. Basically, we're going to be looking at the generic ballot. We're going to be talking about some key races. And for the first 15, 20 minutes here, we're really going to be talking about the important factors that are playing into the House cycle in terms of who's going to come out with control of the House in the next election. year. So uh, we're going to welcome on James. He's one of our panelists uh, at Elections Daily, a contributor there, and he's going to be our guest for this section covering the House races. Hi. All right, we're happy to have you here as a panelist for our House section. So I guess we can start off by just uh, going over what you're thinking about the House elections this year, which way it's leaning. I mean, I, obviously, most of the evidence shows that the um, Democrats are favored to hold their majority in the House. If you look at the generic ballot and the recruitment and some of the key races. But I'm curious to see what you're thinking so far of the House campaign. So lately, the environment seems to be holding steady, if not getting slightly better for Democrats. And as Last week at Elections Daily, we made a series of ratings changes, and I believe all of which were in favor of Democrats, <laughs> almost all of them are in largely suburban seats, such as Pennsylvania's first district, where Brian Fitzpatrick, despite being a strong incumbent and Democrats did not field a strong challenger, we moved it from 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 likely Republican to lean Republican because that's a district that Hillary Clinton mm -hmm. It's one of the two, two and uh, Northeastern seats held by Republicans that voted for Clinton. And Based on 
polling we've seen, it seems that Joe Biden is likely to win this district by even more and that that puts Fitzpatrick in a tough situation. So that's pretty much the the story with all our ratings changes last week. Yeah, I think you brought up some really good points, especially looking at Pennsylvania's first district. It's definitely the type of district um, where you've got a local incumbent like Brian Fitzpatrick, who has strong local connections that allowed him to survive in 2018. And uh, he and John Katko are the only Republicans in the Northeast who survived 2018 in marginal districts or Clinton districts. So you also brought up some really good points about our race ratings changes. So I just thought that I would quickly um, bring up our ratings. Elections Daily is tracking the battle for the House and all the key races. So we have a table here that presents all of the key race ratings at Elections Daily so far. So uh, we use uh, we use the standard ratings that pundits would use. We don't use tilt ratings. So we use likely leans and toss up. Uh, we obviously have the Democrats favored to hold their House majority at this point. Um, and it is possible, given the national environment, that they that both parties gain seats. But it's unlikely so far, looking at recruitment in some of these key races, that the Republicans are going to gain enough seats to uh, make a net gain. I mean, nothing's out of the question. But looking at our ratings here, we don't have any Republican incumbents rated in the Leans Democratic column. We have three Republican-held seats rated as either likely or solid Dem, the two in North Carolina where you had uh, people like holding, retiring from their seats because they were drawn to be more Democratic, um, and you've got good recruits there. And in Texas 23, where Will Hurd, a moderate incumbent who is another Republican who was able to survive in a Clinton seat in 2018, um, is retiring there, and you now just had a very competitive Republican primary for that seat, where it appears Tony Gonzalez has beat Raul Reyes by just a less than 100 votes, a very close race against 2018 candidate Gina Ortiz-Jones. That's another one that we have rated there. Now, one of the reasons why a lot of our Democratic incumbents in marginal districts are, are either in the Leans Democratic column or in some cases the toss-up column, even though their seats on paper might normally be lean Republican, uh, are for a variety of factors. One can be recruitment. There's a lot of speculation that a lot of top GOP recruits, for example, Mark Molinaro in um, District 19 in New York, passed on running this cycle to wait until the Biden midterm, because historically midterms are usually good for the opposite party uh, of the president. And they're assuming that Joe Biden would win this election, uh, which we're going to talk more about his veep stakes and his polling going forward. But uh, a quick thing and more thing, uh, basically backing up why it's not just always recruitment on the Republican side that's allowing these Democrats to be favored in districts that normally wouldn't be easy holds for them. Also, it has to do with fundraising. A lot of Democratic incumbents are very strong fundraisers. Incumbents in general are usually strong fundraisers, which is why it's usually very difficult to run against an incumbent. And 
Uh, you have to remember that 2018 saw the defeat of a lot of Republicans that represented traditionally Republican suburban seats, but those seats have been trending towards the Democrats in the Trump era. So those seats as well, you're definitely seeing something positive for the Democrats there going forward. And generally, if you think about the principles of swing between two elections, if Joe Biden performs better than Hillary Clinton, and we don't, we can't assume that, that will happen, but if the polling holds true, then it's possible that Biden will perform better than Clinton in some of these seats, which could help Democratic incumbents. Uh, but we still have a lot of toss-up races, uh, and it's still possible. Obviously, I would say that the four most vulnerable Democratic incumbents are Colin Peterson, who's being challenged by Michelle Fishbach, who served in the Minnesota State Senate and is the former lieutenant governor of the state. Uh, we also have Oklahoma 5, where Kendra Horn is running in a seat that's based predominantly in Oklahoma County. Uh, is being challenged by, we don't know her challenger yet, there's a runoff between Stephanie Bice and Terry Neese. In South Carolina 1, widely viewed as possibly the best Republican candidate at the cycle, Nancy Mace is challenging Joe Cunningham. And in New York 22, Claudia Tenney is challenging Anthony Brindisi in a rematch to regain the seat she narrowly lost last time. Uh, at the same time, Republicans also have some good recruits in seats that are tougher for them to win. One is in my home state of New Jersey in the 7th District, Tom Kane, who is the minority leader in the state Senate and has a long pedigree in New Jersey politics, is a very good candidate on paper, but the seat swung more to the left of any other competitive seat in New Jersey between the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections. So it's certainly uh, a much harder seat for Tom Kane to win than it would have been before Congressman Leonard Lance was defeated in 2018 by Tom Malinowski. Uh, you have other examples of that. Wesley Hunt in Texas 7, a good candidate in a more difficult seat. Uh, Young Kim, David Valadeo, uh, Michelle Park Steele, all of them are in seats that long term are not going towards the Republicans anymore. Uh, and then, of course, you have Trump seats where the Republicans have nominated questionable candidates that may not be as well qualified. Kyle Vanderwater in New York 19 is definitely a recruitment pass because they did not get Mark Molinaro there. And there, there are various examples of this around the country uh, that are kind of impeding Republican hopes of taking back the House. But of course, uh, if the current trends hold, Democrats are favored. So real quick, uh, we're going to bring back our panelist, James, for the House. And I just want to hear your opinion. In your opinion, what are, what are, if you had to make a list, what are the five seats? Um, you can talk about it for either party that you expect to be really competitive this election, potential upset seats. Like where do you see surprises happening this November? Yes. So on the democratic side, I'm, Looking at Indiana, five, Missouri, two, Pennsylvania, ten, Texas, ten, and Texas, twenty-two. All of the these are largely sub suburban seats held by Republicans 
and all of them voted for Donald Trump last time. However, there's a good chance that at least some might vote for Joe Biden. Now, on the Republican side, the field is a bit smaller, but I'm looking closely at Maine's second and Minnesota seven. Both are largely rural white districts that have printed Republican during the Trump presidency and that they both have credible challengers. So I believe those will be close. Mm -hmm. I think you brought up some really good points. I mean, a lot of the seats you were talking about on the Democratic side, such as Missouri 2, Indiana 5, there's certainly seats that are trending towards the Democrats, and a lot of them we moved to toss-ups. I also like that you brought up Texas, because Texas appears to be the biggest battleground state in the House. We've got a ton of competitive races in Texas. In fact, nearly 10 competitive races in Texas, about, about that. Uh, Texas 10 is one of them. Texas 24 is one of them. 22, 23. And you even recently have had seats like 3, 24, and uh, 6 move to the likely Republican column, uh, largely because they typically would have one tiny area that's suburban and trending towards the Democrats, and then the rest is solid Republican land, typically rural uh, to some extent, or suburban. And also in Texas, we have, I mean, two seats, Colin Outred and um, Lizzie Pinnell Flesher. Both of those seats are expected to remain Democratic, but uh, you've got good candidates like Wesley Hunt running in the seventh, and both those seats could still be competitive this November. Uh, and then I, I, I did like as well, just in general, how you were bringing up the importance of, pres of uh, Joe Biden, former Vice President Biden running his campaign and how his performance this presidential election will impact down ballot races, particularly in the House. So we're about to move on to our next section, but I just want to see if you have any last closing words about the House and, um, you know, what race would you guess will be the closest this November if you had to take a guess? <laughs> so, so at this point, I think it's more likely that then not that Democrats gain seats then lose and just based on 
the fundamentals. I'm 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 gonna take a guess that the closest house race will be uh, Texas twenty one which is in the Austin and San Antonio area. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, that seat is held by Chip Roy, who's very conservative in an otherwise democratic trending seat and Democrats have nominated former state senator and gubernatorial nominee Wendy Davis, who he, you could argue either way if she's a good candidate or not. Mm-hmm. She's a good fundraiser. That's mm-hmm. true. That, that's true. But I have a feeling that she she isn't quite the best fit for that district. So I think it'll be close. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, James, very much for coming on for our house panel. You definitely added a lot of... Um, interesting insight into the discussion. Uh, We hope to have you on again soon. Thank you again. Uh, We're going to, so have a good night. We're going to welcome on, you're welcome. We're going to welcome on Peter for our discussion about the Veep stakes with President um, Donald Trump and Joe Biden facing off in the 2020 election. One of the most important factors of this election and any election is the VP pick. So we're going to bring on Peter and he actually uh, moderated the discussion earlier, I believe it was on Elections Weekly about this, so I'm sure he has a lot to say. So, mm-hmm. welcome, Peter. We're happy Good to night. have you here to talk about. Yeah, we're happy to have you here to talk about uh, Democratic nominee Joe Biden's uh, VP pick, and we're basically mm-hmm. just going to focus on some potential options for the pick, ranking them in likelihood since his announcement is probably coming in just a couple of days, and you know, talking about potential. Uh, benefits and potential downsides to nominating mm-hmm. specific candidates for vice president. So first off, I guess you should just give a little introduction on who you think Joe Biden is going to pick uh, as his running mate this cycle. Yes, yeah, so I think Joe Biden uh, will do the conventional. And I think the most likely pick is Senator Kamala Harris of uh, California. I just think she checks off a lot of boxes that Biden wants or needs with his vice, pres- vice presidential nominee. 
Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, another thing to note, and this was brought up actually a few months ago in a forum hosted by Kyle Kondik uh, and other folks at the Crystal Ball with some guests from prominent universities. They were talking about uh, who would be picked as Biden's running mate. And I believe Kyle brought up that the Democrats, and this is true, have picked a senator for decades now as the VP running mate. I mean, if you think about it, Tim Kaine was a senator from Virginia. Mm -hmm. Biden was from Delaware. John Edwards. Joe Lieberman, and then you go back to Al Gore, Lloyd Benson. Mm -hmm. The last time Democrats nominated someone who wasn't a senator for vice president was Geraldine Ferraro, uh, who was a congressman. And they nominated Mondale Pictor as the first woman picked for vice president in 84. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if it's symbolic, if that was the last time the Democrats have picked a woman to be their VP nominee. And now Joe Biden is poised to do that again. Is there any chance that Joe Biden picks someone like Val Demings, who would not be a sitting U.S. senator, breaking that trend? I think it's very unlikely. I think how she's fallen off in recent weeks. And I think herself basically saying she didn't really want the job. I think it pretty much points to, if it's not a senator, at the very least, a former uh, Obama administration official possibly being the run for it. I mean, the only other House representative that's only been talked about very recently in recent weeks is uh, Karen Bass of California. Uh, she does have some experience being a former California state speaker, so that might be the only other name even to watch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think about, speaking of Obama administration official uh, Susan Rice, her name's been thrown around in the past few days actually on Twitter particularly, but I'm curious what you think about that. I mean, I'm not surprised she's being mentioned. I think, though, I think she brings too much baggage to a ticket. I think uh, it's an easy attack ad to say, look, it's the two Obama officials, you know, from the last, you know, administration, and you can tie that in, even if it's maybe not popular at the current moment. I just think she brings too much baggage with the whole Benghazi uh, saga. Um, I think she's much more likely, in my opinion, to get something should Biden win in his administration as Secretary of State or some senior White House level staffing position again. So I think I'm not surprised it, it mixes with the list he wants, but I don't think it'd be a smart pick to choose her. Mm -hmm. uh, and another thing, just looking at senators, since that is the trend of the Democrats to pick senators over the last few decades. Um, do you think, what do you think about chances for other senators, uh, other female senators? Tammy Duckworth's been mentioned in recent weeks. You've always had Elizabeth Warren in the background as well. So I'm just curious what you think about those and how you would rank them. Yeah, um, I think with Warren, I think if this was 2016, I think Biden would have cho chosen her. I think that they're very close uh, from what's been said uh, in many different media outlets. Um, I just don't think Warren has a chance in this cycle, especially with the Democratic Party that is very owing, to, especially with Biden being very owing of the fact that he's the nominee with thanks to the African-American vote, the primary. And I just don't think with all that's happened in the last few months with the George Floyd protests and everything that's happened since that, with Black Lives Matter and whatnot, that choosing a white woman would be symbolically the best idea on a ticket. Um, with Duckworth, uh, so just to finish off, I think Warren is very unlikely. Um, I think with Duckworth, she's a good person on paper. I think she, you know, she's a combat vet. She's served her country. Uh, she won against a very decent Republican incumbent in Mark Kirk in 2016. And she's served, you know, in a, at the time of very, she's been, you know, in administrative service as well as former VA head at, of Illinois. Um, I just think what hurts her is I don't really think she wants it. And I think also her media appearances have been, she's very gaff prone. And I think that could be problematic for Biden, uh, having a VP who might get into the news more. I think 
in a normal cycle, I think she'd be very likely to be chosen, but I don't, don't see it this cycle. So what you're saying is you expect Biden to pick someone who makes up for the qualities that he lacks as a candidate, not someone yep. to complement qualities he already has. So that brings us to another aspect of the VP selection process that has been prominently discussed since Biden announced he was picking a woman, and that is, will Biden select a person of color or will he select someone who's uh, white? And most Democrats seem to want someone who is a person of color to kind of compliment Joe Biden. And like you said, almost to energize the African-American vote even more, even though they've already backed by Joe Biden heavily in the Democratic mm -hmm. primary up to this point. So how big is race in terms of being a factor in the selection of the Democratic nominee? And how mm -hmm. would selecting uh, an African-American woman or a Hispanic woman um, essentially change the outcome of the election mm -hmm. potentially based off of turnout for coalitions? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. I think with the African-American coalition, I think on paper, a lot of people say it will help. I don't really think it will make an impact. I think Biden, just being by default Barack Obama's vice president, vice president will get a lot of black voters to come out and say he was with Obama in eight years. I'm going to give him my vote again. I think if there was any group, maybe if in a different hindsight, he maybe should have maybe looked at for a VP, it would be getting a Latina vice presidential, maybe a contender. He's polling, even though he's done very well across the board with polling. His numbers with Hispanics has been very historically weak for a Democrat to many different polling. So maybe in a, maybe he could have chosen a Latina. Karen Catherine Masta was a name brought up, or uh, Lewis Graham, uh, the governor mm -hmm. of New Mexico. Maybe would have been good and uh, would have maybe improved his numbers with Latinos. Then again, he could very much win a landslide where he's looking at right now. Maybe do mediocre with that, but maybe I don't think the vice, the vice presidential nominee has a lot of impact on that. But it yeah. mm -hmm. helps maybe, you know, for example, with Spanish voters, if a Spanish speaking, you know, vice presidential nominee goes on a Spanish television and basically says, I'm one of you. You can vote for me knowing that I have your back in the White House. Yeah, I can see for sure how it may help on the campaign, but I was also, that was going to be my second question, and you kind of brought it up anyway, is looking at the vice president in the eyes of most voters, not political junkies, they, they probably don't care as much about the vice president. So it is worth noting how much of an impact the VP really has outside of the party politics and looking at the general election as a whole. I mean, mm -hmm. in your opinion, I, I would assume you agree that most people, just average people that aren't that interested in politics, they follow the presidential campaign yeah. between the two individuals. And that's basically how they make their choice. That's what they care about the most. Yeah, I think so. And I think parties over the years have also tried to avoid issues with their VPs uh, ever since the Eagleton incident uh, in 72 yeah. mm -hmm. uh, McGovern. So I think parties do this very heavily, carefully. And I think no one really cares, though. I think the big thing with this year's VP choice should Biden win is that there's a very high chance that whoever gets that role may have more additional powers given to them because of Biden's advanced age and like possible likelihood that he may only serve one term and being and that person never will be the standard burr of the party in 24. Yeah, that's a good point. And I've heard a lot of people talking about Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I don't think we should speculate on how Biden's yeah. term is going to go or any of that, because it's way too early. We don't even even know the outcome of the mm -hmm. election yet. But um, since we have about one minute left before we go on our mid-show mid commercial break, mm -hmm. um, I'd just like to ask you, if you had to rank the likelihood, if you had to pick five top mm -hmm. candidates and rank them by how likely Biden is to select them as vice president, uh, who would you pick? I, I'll start off at the top. I think it'd be number one, Warren. I think number two, 
would be Bass. Uh, number three, I would say, is uh, Duckworth. Um, four, um, Susan Rice. And probably number five, uh, Elizabeth Warren. I'd say those are the uh, five. I would mm -hmm. see. I just don't think. I think Val Demings has fallen off that list. I yeah. reviewed that this a month ago. Yep. Mm -hmm. So in conclusion, as we wrap up this yeah. section, and I know you're coming back, I believe, for our Senate section yes, later on uh, after the commercial break. Um, but yes, you think Kamala Harris is going to be the VP pick. Yes. And uh, just to note, uh, for the historical context, she will be the second person of color to be the VP, uh, as the first happened in the 1920s with uh, Hoover's vice president, Tonami, just for mm -hmm. those who may not be aware of that. That's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Peter. We'll have you back on later. Well. All right, guys, we're going to be going on a brief commercial break for about two to three minutes. Please stay tuned. Do not leave. Come back for more intuitive content discussing the history of polling in presidential elections and what it means for 2020, as well as the expanding Senate battleground. We'll see you in three minutes. All right, welcome back to the report. We're going to begin the second half of our show now, as I mentioned before the break. We have two segments. Earlier, we discussed the House battleground and Biden's Veep stakes. This time, we're going to be discussing the history of polling in American presidential elections and what it means for 2020. And after that, we'll be discussing the expanding Senate battleground, where we hope to have various panelists. Looking at the history of polling in presidential elections in the United States, I've devised this right here. It's a graph I made in Excel, essentially analyzing deviation from polling results from the final poll for each US presidential election. So I've gone back to 1960 here, so you can see the nominees for each party going back to 1960 and the polling data for each election. The I inside parentheses indicates that that president is an incumbent. And if you look at the actual result, the asterisk next to the result means that even though the Democrats won the popular vote this year, uh, that those years, after all, these results are the national popular vote total, uh, the Republicans won the Electoral College. So you saw that in 2016 and you saw that in 2000. So first off, if you look, you can see the final polling for each result. So if we want to start all the way back in, let's say, 1960, which was an incredibly contested election between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. Nixon was actually the vice president at the time under the Eisenhower administration. And John F. Kennedy was a rising star senator with a strong family name and a handsome looking, uh, handsome background and a very likable family. And essentially John F. Kennedy ran a much more efficient campaign than Richard Nixon. Nixon stumbled through each state. He had a strategy of visiting every state in the union rather than focusing on critical states. And that really didn't play well for him at the end of the campaign. If he had spent more time in critical swing states, he definitely would have had a better chance uh, over the course of the whole election. And looking at Richard Nixon as well, there is a true story that during the debate, he did slam his knee into a car door before going into the debate, and later that was infected, so he had to go to the hospital, which took him off the campaign trail. And that's probably why viewers who watched the debate, it was actually the first televised presidential debate, the first debate of any kind for president. Viewers who saw it in person said John F. Kennedy won, probably playing with his appearance, and uh, people who watched it, listened to it on the radio, believe Richard Nixon had won, if you look at that polling there. Now, we actually have had polling in presidential elections going all the way back 
1932 when Herbert Hoover was unseated as president by FDR, but I decided only to go back to 1960 because it looks at the results of all of these elections. So you can see John F. Kennedy was leading by two points in the final poll. And when I say final poll, this is the last poll conducted each election, election cycle compared to the actual result. And the deviation, which is the final column, is the difference between the two. So there was roughly a 2% deviation between the final poll and the actual result in 1960. Now, if you look at that election, it was quite an interesting election because the Electoral College was much more lopsided uh, than the popular vote, which may lead some who look at it at first glance to believe that it wasn't that close of an election uh, because Kennedy got over 300 electoral votes and secured victories in a lot of key swing states, sometimes by uh, through a controversial means like in Illinois, where he was accused of having the mafia mobilize votes to help him, but the, those allegations were never substantiated. Um, but if you look at the result, the popular vote came within one-tenth of one percent. So Kennedy won by just 0.1 percent. So it really ended up being a historic once-in-a-century election, a brilliant campaign to read about between two candidates, both of whom would serve as president at some point in their careers. And Nixon would go on to lose election as an election for governor in the state of California after his loss in 1960, uh, which made his comeback to the political scene in 1968 just that much more incredible because no one had expected that in the middle of the decade. But as you can see, the polling still was fairly accurate in that it predicted a Kennedy victory in the popular vote, and that happened. And except for 1876, 1888, 2000, and 2016, the winner of the popular vote has uh, also been the winner of the electoral vote. And I'm excluding 1824 there. Um, if you look at 1964, again, the polling was fairly accurate and it predicted a Johnson landslide over Barry Goldwater. And that indeed proved to be true. Although there is a 5% deviation, which would usually be rather big. Um, but as you'll see with some other landslides on this list, uh, it usually isn't that big of a difference, given the fact that the candidate was up by a wide margin, a landslide margin. Um, and at one point, Johnson was actually leading Goldwater 77 to 17 in polls, which is one of the largest gaps between an incumbent president and a challenger in an election year, especially in the modern two-party system era. That uh, race ended up being closer than that, but Johnson ended up winning by a wide margin. Uh, in 1968, Final polls had Nixon ahead narrowly, and he won narrowly. So, And so far, the elections, the polling matched up with them. Looking at 1972, the polling was fairly accurate. It was actually incredibly accurate, and it's actually the second to lowest deviation on this list in terms of national popular polling and the popular vote result. And I just want to clarify that since the president isn't elected by popular vote, uh, but rather is elected by the Electoral College, just because a candidate wins the popular vote doesn't mean um, that they're going to be elected president. But usually the national popular vote is a good indicator of which way the country is going, because as I said, usually they go hand in hand, the popular vote and the Electoral College. Um, so you obviously had Nixon and that landslide over McGovern as an incumbent accurately predicted. In 1976, Final polling actually showed Gerald Ford, who was the incumbent, up by one percentage point. And that was quite incredible at the time because just a few months earlier, Jimmy Carter had 30-point leads over Gerald Ford, who was an incumbent. So Ford managed to come back and make it a tight election, but Carter still won. He won narrowly in key swing states that allowed him to take 
a victory there in an election that some would argue was a pretty clear-cut east-west divide with some of the Rust Belt states still going to Ford. Um, and Carter went on to be a president that some would view as unsuccessful. Many view him as a president who was president at the wrong time, someone who would have been more successful during, say, the 90s than he was at the turn of the decade into the 1980s. But because of the Iran hostage crisis and continuing stagflation having to do with the oil crisis, uh, Ronald Reagan managed to beat Jimmy Carter. Now, one of the interesting things about 1980 is that the race was often pulled as much closer than expected. Actually, for the first few months of the race, Carter, and it may be hard to believe given how much Reagan won by looking at the Electoral College, which was a big landslide and his wide margin in the popular vote, it may be hard to believe that President Carter was actually leading polls uh, even by as much as 63 to 36 at the beginning of the campaign. But Reagan hit home on his message and he managed to win. Final polling um, had Reagan up by only three points. So this actually turns out to be the biggest deviation in any election was 1980 uh, because Reagan was essentially underpolled in that race against Carter and Carter was overestimated slightly in the polling. Uh, and you can see that here if you compare the final popular vote margin with the final polling. Uh, now, the most accurate, ironically, the most accurate polling in a presidential year was 1984 on the national level because Walter Mondale was losing by 18 points in the final poll and he only lost by 0.2% more than that. So that is the lowest deviation when you look at that. Um, and if you're going forward and looking at 1988 through the 90s, the, the 1988 campaign was thoroughly interesting. Dukakis started off with leads over former Vice President Bush. Um, Reagan had been, been in office for two terms at that point. There was a recession in 1987. The Iran-Contra scandal damaged the credibility of the Republicans. People weren't clear on Vice President Bush's involvement in that scandal. So for quite some time, it looked like America had soured on the Republicans. Uh, but Lee Atwater ran a, whatever you think of Lee Atwater as a man, he ran a very successful ad campaign on behalf of the Bush campaign, working with Karl Rove and the nominee himself to craft an agenda that would really be poignant in 1988. And often they would resort to really mudslinging attacks on Dukakis, who they referred to as a Massachusetts liberal from his time as governor of Massachusetts. They attacked him for the revolving prison door policy, where he supposedly signed a bill that let Willie Thornton out of prison, who was a mass murderer, essentially. And they used that uh, to portray Dukakis as someone who would be soft on crime. They also criticized Dukakis for allowing Boston Harbor to be incredibly dirty during that point of time, during the time of his governorship. And they said that he wasn't clear on the environment because he couldn't keep his own state's most prominent uh, harbor clean. Um, and then, of course, you had two more gaffes for Dukakis at the debate. You had Dukakis essentially say that he would he would not support the death penalty even for someone that would murder his own wife. And also looking at Dukakis, he rode around in a tank and then looked, frankly, he looked silly and ridiculous. And Bush used that in an advertisement to portray him as someone who didn't understand the military. And, you know, Bush's background as a veteran who was shot down during World War II played into a role and he won. He won by a smaller than expected margin, but he still won. Both of Bill Clinton's wins, if you look at them, he won by smaller margins than were predicted. Um, and if you look again at 2000, Bush actually led the campaign. He led polling for a long time, even with the DUI at the end of that campaign. Interesting bit of trivia. 
even though Gore ended up winning the popular vote, a lot of pundits actually expected Bush to win the popular vote. And no Republican has ever won the popular vote and, and lost the Electoral College and been elected president. Or sorry, no, I said that backwards. Uh, um, in all four of those elections, 1876, 88, 2000, and 2016, you had a Republican president, uh, presidential nominee, who won the Electoral College and lost the popular vote. But you haven't had a Republican who's won the popular vote uh, and become, and uh, or you haven't had, a, you get what I'm trying to say. Um, but if you look at more recent elections, which some people would have as more poignant examples of how 2020 may go, 2008 and 2012, Obama um, had leads over both of his opponents. 2008 ended up being closer than expected in the popular vote. And interestingly, if you look at the whole campaign average in 2012, some would say that Romney underperformed expectations. I mean, at some point he was actually leading the RCP uh, polling average. Uh, and if you look at 2016, yet another example of a Democratic candidate that won the popular vote but lost the Electoral College, uh, allowing Donald Trump to become president, there was a 2.2% difference in the national popular vote. And even though 2016 proved to be a big upset because Donald Trump was not expected to win, uh, particularly swing state polling had been off, nationally, it, the polling deviation actually was not that high. It was actually lower than 2008. And lower than 2004. In fact, the average deviation on the national popular vote for polling is 2.7%. And I added the current RCP average for July for the 2020 race, uh, and Biden's up by around nine percentage points. So if you take off that 2.7% from Biden's lead, you're, you're roughly at a six-point Biden lead, which is greater than Hillary Clinton's lead uh, at the end of the campaign at four by 2%. And that's why a lot of people are saying Biden is more likely to win the key swing states because he's up more nationally than Hillary Clinton was at the same time. Now, again, we can't say in journalism that something is definitive, that it's going to happen. Uh, but as of now, Joe Biden is a favorite if you look at the data for the presidential election. And before we move on to our next section, all I hope to go over at this point is just analyzing the history of polling and deviation to show you that contrary to what people may think, polling is usually fairly accurate and the deviation in the grand scheme of things is usually not that big. And it's important to note that the swing state polling is the most important because the Electoral College elects the president. Um, but Trump, some have said to win re-election, he, he might, if he shaves down the popular vote margin just enough, he could repeat what he did in 2016 and become the first president to win two terms without winning the popular vote either time. But at this point, the race doesn't show a sign of tightening, and Biden is maintaining a steady lead over President Trump. Uh, and just to clarify what I said earlier when I slipped up, it's kind of like a mental tongue twister thinking about the relationship between the popular vote and the Electoral College. So those four elections I mentioned were all elections where the Democrat won the popular vote, but lost the election because they lost the electoral vote to the Republicans. And in US history, there hasn't been a time, even though people predicted in 2000, that George Bush would win the Electoral College, but lose the popular vote. But there hasn't been a time where a Republican has been elected president uh, just by winning the popular vote. Uh, or just by winning the Electoral College. But we're just going to move on to uh, a new segment talking about the Senate races. 
So we're going to take a quick break to assemble our panel, and then we're going to welcome our panel back on. Stay tuned. Uh, stay tuned because we're going to be talking about uh, the U.S. Senate battleground, which has expanded for Democrats and is yielding quite a few interesting races. So we'll be right back. All right. So welcoming Eric and Peter onto our discussion. Uh, we're going to be talking about the competitive Senate races and looking at where Democrats have the best chance to win key seats to flip the Senate. So uh, we're going to throw the mic to Eric first for him to discuss where he thinks the key races are and how they're going to go. So, Eric, feel free. Definitely. So uh, if we look at the elections daily, uh, Senate ratings we have at the moment, um, it's a pretty stable field. We've got a few toss-up races that are really important. Um, one race that I don't think we ha we currently have as a toss-up is Montana. That is a, that is an important race at the moment. I do think there are certain fundamental factors in the race that will swing it back towards the Republicans to a degree. Enough where I don't think it'll be the tipping point state. If they're losing Montana, I think they've already lost control of the Senate. Um, like they, they shouldn't be relying on Montana. De but basically what I'm saying is Democrats shouldn't be relying on Montana to get them the majority. They can get it without it. Montana is just a nice little you know piece above it. You know, you prefer your Arizona's, North Carolina's, Maine's, those sorts of states. Um, so right now we have three toss-ups. We have Montana, North Carolina, and Maine. In order, I think Maine is the most competitive of the three. Um, clearly, there's been polling shown a very com competitive race. The the real clear uh, politics polling is you know, shows a, you know the polling average um, is of uh, a benefit for Sarah Gidgen. She's pulling ahead of Susan Collins at the moment. And if you look at the um, look at the numbers, Susan Collins' favorability has significantly dropped. One other factor is ranked choice voting, and ranked choice voting um, will ultimately mean that. Susan Collins can't skate through with a minority of the vote. She's going to have to either win outright on the first round or hope that people who voted for third party candidates vote for her in the second round. Um, it's definitely, um, there's unique circumstances to make that race one Democrats really should be trying to win. Um, you know, it, it, at our map at the moment, we have 48 states as leaning Democratic. So Democrats would need to win two of those three states, Maine, North Carolina, Montana, in order to win the Senate. Second up is North Carolina. Um, recent polling has shown a slight but slight advantage for Cal Cunningham in the race. Um, he has no relation to me, just for anyone who wants to wonder. Um, there are not many of us in North Carolina, but we're not related. Um, the There's a poll out today from Marist, who I uh, have issues with the pollster, mainly because they don't wait by education. There are also issues with sampling. But regardless, it's part of a considerable trend of polling, which has shown a lead for Cal Cunningham in the race. Um, I've been of the opinion that if Donald Trump wins North Carolina, which I still think he has a very good chance of doing, um, that Tom Tillis would be dragged along or would run ahead of him. But what we're seeing at the moment is Tom Tillis running behind a little bit from where Trump is. Ultimately, I think how Trump does in North Carolina will determine the fate of Tom Tillis as a senator either way. Um, I don't know if there's really a scenario where Trump is losing North Carolina, but Tom Tillis hangs on. Um, the one advantage Republicans have here is that while Tom Tillis is not really a compelling candidate, neither is Cal Cunningham. He hasn't held elective office in a couple decades. He's been mostly absent from campaigning. Um, he has impressive fundraising numbers, but it's North Carolina. Um, that's to be a given. Our, our Senate races have been competitive like this for decades. You know, back in the 80s, we had the famous race between Jesse Helms and uh, Jim Hunt. 
Mm-hmm. And that was the most competitive Senate race in American history. At and Hunt was actually favored to win that election. For oh, quite yeah. Some time. Yeah. He was absurdly popular in North Carolina. Um, I can't for the, I'm a Republican, so I'm not going to say too many negative things about him. But he was favored and it was a lot of money spent on that race. And ultimately, Helms was able to, to pull it out. Um, also, one other thing to note with North Carolina is that um, similar a similar result was found in 2016, where the state was considered competitive at the presidential level, one where Democrats are very confident they would win on election day. I remember when I was at Appalachian State, they sent in Chelsea Clinton to, you know, I presumably, you know, pump up the voters. They were very confident that, you know, they would be able to win the state. Um, they were also confident Deborah Ross, Ross would win. Um, but ultimately, um, Senator Rich, uh, Richard Burr was able to pull out a six-point win, which was ahead of what Trump pulled off. So he was able to take a race that was um, looking pretty bad initially and kind of run away with it in the last month. That's kind of what Republicans have to hope for here. And then, of course, the last Senate race is Montana. Um, that's the most. Um, that's the one Democrats would want to get to 51 seats. You have more leeway at 51. You can have at least one person who can uh, slip off in voting. That might be Mark Kelly, who we have considerably favored at the moment considering he has to run again in 2022, that would enable him to vote no on some relatively controversial pieces of legislation under a presumed Biden presidency. Obviously, the advantage for Democrats in Montana is that Steve Bullock is the incumbent governor, and he is very popular. He won election twice in uh, Republican terms, which um, is really impressive, considering the general partisan lean of the state of Montana. Um, On the flip side, however, Steve Daines is not unpopular. He's about as popular as Steve Bullock was prior to the coronavirus. Um, they they have similar ratings. He's not a flamethrower. He's not someone with a controversial record. So aside from being a pretty standard Republican, there's not a whole lot Steve Bullock can specifically attack him on. Like, you know, for yeah. example, in 2018, they were able to attack the Republican nominee, Matt Rosendale, for originally being from, uh, Maryland, from, being from Maryland. Yeah, even though I think that was a little bit unfair of an attack given he'd been there for for several decades by that point, it's stuck. I mean, I mean yeah. I mean, um, in 2018, you had people like Patrick Morrissey, who actually ran in New Jersey for a congressional seat. He ran for the 7th District in the early 2000s. So. Yeah. And then you have uh, Alex Mooney, who was originally from Maryland, who has yes. one of the House seats there. Yeah. Um, so you've seen some Maryland transplants that have been able to you know, be a little bit mm-hmm. successful in, in coming over. But um, yeah. fundamentally, Montana is challenging because it is a state that is going to vote for Donald Trump by some degree. We have it as likely Republican. And I think I say, I'm fairly confident in saying unless the, the, the numbers get worse for Trump, uh, Montana is a state that's probably going to go Republican. So that's the challenge is, is Steve Bullock will have to pull off a substantial portion of Trump voters in all likelihood in order mm-hmm. to win that race. Um, those are the three races I'd be looking at most closely yeah. going into November. So real quick, I want to throw it over to Peter to talk about which races he thinks are going to be the most important. If he wants to add um, anything to what Eric said. Yeah, um, I mostly agree with his list, though. I would add probably another key race uh, that may very well determine control as well if um, in that sense of oh, dear, I'm forgetting the uh, – well, let's start off. Yeah, I agree. Look, with North Carolina, I think that's a must win for Democrats. If they're going to get control of the Senate, they have to win North Carolina. That's pretty much the – race to have to do. I think um, Tom Tillis has not done very well in his campaigning. Then again, Mm -hmm. he had the same problem in 2014 when the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee had to bail him out in the final weeks of that campaign. And Cal Cunningham, I I get what Eric's saying about not being an impressive candidate, but he's done pretty well in terms of what he's had to do in terms of fundraising and leading in every poll 
I believe, for most of this year. Um, I think that's the, a key one. I think another key race is, again, Maine. Um, I think Susan Collins, is, again, is in the fight of her life, but I think she, she's not dead or no. I think I think too many people have written her grave already, but I think uh, she needs to do very well on that first mm -hmm. uh, ranked choice voting. If she doesn't, she's not going to get out of there uh, with a win. Um, mm -hmm. I think the other – yeah. I would agree with your analysis of Maine. Uh, Susan Collins is definitely not dead on arrival like a senator like mm -hmm. Doug Jones or Cory Gard uh, or Cory Gardner at this point. But it is definitely her toughest re-election over the course of her uh, history in the U.S. Senate. It's actually her closest election since her first election over Joseph Brennan in 1996. It'll probably be even closer than that. Uh, but that's certainly a race to watch. We have another panelist I'd like to welcome on, um, Armin Thomas. Welcome to our Senate panel right now. Okay. So I'll throw the question to you as well. Where do you think the most important races for the Senate are gonna be this November? In which way do you see them going? Um, so I think that uh, the the race in which uh, control of the Senate will hinge, I think is going to be Maine. And uh, Peter, I think talked about that a little bit. Um, gun to my head, I think if things uh, keep going the way they're going right now, Collins is likely going to lose by uh, a small margin. It's not, I mean, Maine is a blue state, but Collins is still very popular. And the second district of Maine has lots of potential to get redder. Um, and that could very well be a, uh, a boon of strength for Collins. I think Maine, uh, I think North Carolina as well, just in terms of, uh, you know, the, the demographics that are in the state and how they reflect the nation very well. Um, I think that North Carolina is going to be another good bellwether for how this, for how this, the nation and the state uh, goes as well. Um, I think those two are the most important ones. Uh, I mean, because obviously Alabama and Colorado uh, keep the Democrats at forty-seven, mm -hmm. then Arizona is forty-eight, and then they need forty-nine and fifty, and those are going to be North Carolina and Maine. And yeah. in order to have a mansion-proof majority, they probably need one other, um, mm -hmm. and that would be Montana or Iowa or you know Alaska, perhaps, or mm -hmm. some extra seat out there. And and one thing that that I know we we didn't talk about yet is Iowa, and it's developing into a fairly close race between Teresa Greenfield and Joni Ernst. So I think Peter wants to talk about this race really quick uh, before we begin to wrap up. Yeah, I mean, this race is a bit of a, a bit of a surprise. I mean, the conventional wisdom was at the beginning of this year that Journey Earth was going to be in for a tough re-election, but was relatively favored to win comfortably against Teresa Greenfield. But in the last few weeks and months, with the national average falling apart for the president, uh, she's become under a lot of uh, pressure with her in margins, um, especially in the last two weeks when she made a gaffe on Iowa public television saying she would support uh, – confirmation of any Supreme Court uh, nominee in the lame duck session, which contradicts uh, the senior senator from Iowa's own view on that, Chuck Grassley. Uh, so she's put herself in unnecessary uh, mm -hmm. danger. And if Republicans lose that race, that's really dangerous for them on being able to hold the majority. Because if they don't have Iowa whatsoever, there's really no way or mathematical yeah. portion for them to get over 50 so real quick, just I want to hear a brief little statement from all of you. Uh, which seats do you expect the Democrats to flip this November if you had to pick uh, today the Senate map? And I'm just going to go around like round robin and you can just pick. So, Eric, first. Uh, if I had to pick two today, um, 
I think Maine would be the one to flip. North Carolina is, I want to say Cunningham has an advantage at the moment, but we have it at toss-up, and if there's any advantage there, it would be the equivalent of a tilt D. Uh, most races in North Carolina will turn out to be a coin flip, is what I, I tend to think going into November. Um, so I'd like to see a little, a little bit more there. And I think at the moment, uh, Bullock may actually have a small advantage, mm-hmm. as well as uh, Greenfield um, in, in Iowa is doing pretty well. Those would be ones, if it were to happen today, those would be the ones to look at. And then also both of the Georgia Senate races. I don't want to leave those mm-hmm. out. Um, obviously, the special election, we could get a scenario where you have two Republicans going against each other. Um, but I think the actual general election is pretty fairly competitive at the moment. Um, I think yeah. Democrats are well positioned to get not just a a mansion-proof majority, but a mansion-Kelly-proof majority where they have 52 mm-hmm. seats and can afford to have two people flake off in mm-hmm. voting, similar to what you've seen with Republicans were Collins and Murkowski. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter, you next. Um, I think the key word is today. If it was today, I'd say Democrats would probably be picking up Arizona, Colorado, Iowa, uh, North Carolina, Maine. Um, and I think both Georgia races would be heading off to runoffs. Um, but yeah, it's early. I think, again, what Republicans need is to get the environment better because currently how this is heading, this has more of a 2008 feel for the Senate Republicans than it has any other thing. And we saw in 2008, once the top of the ticket crashed, it spread like wildfire to the Republican candidates in the Senate as well. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of gains both in 2006 and in 2008, which is why some people are saying 2010 may be a chance to make up for uh, losses on a relatively difficult Senate map back in 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, but real quick, I'm just going to go to Armin. Uh, what's your pick? What seats of the Democrats flip if the election was today? Yeah, so I think I'm going to agree with Peter on basically everything he said. I think Colorado, Maine. Uh, I th- I'm going to hold off on North Carolina just because there really isn't as much information as I'd like to see. But gun to my head, I think Tillis would lose narrowly. Um, but I wouldn't say that you know uh, I like that he has uh, that he's now a very strong underdog in his race. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also that was Colorado, Arizona, Maine. North Carolina is, you know, basically a toss-up, but tilt D, as Eric said. Um, uh, and then, yeah, I, I'm going to say Montana and Iowa as well. The thing, though, is, um, I mean, in 2018, the polling looked pretty good for the Democrats in the summer. And, you know, one of the things, the, the one of the ways the Republicans can engineer a, a comeback is with some kind of, uh, you know, giant... Uh, event to energize their base, which is what the Kavanaugh hearings were. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that cooked all of the red state democratic senators. Um, the map isn't as favorable to the GOP this time, but you know, Democrats aren't running on solidly blue turf, you know, yeah. you need to flip red districts. And given that, you know, Trump is the kind of guy who, you know, he, we can say that he's full of surprises, you know, there, there are many different ways he can try and, uh, Exactly. Yeah. The, the, there are many different ways that he can use the structural advantage of the Senate in that, you know, Republican leading voters are overrepresented compared to their, you know, actual raw numbers. And, you know, he can activate that, you know, by, you know, appealing to some kind of mm-hmm. you know, more primal culture war issues and the COVID pandemic and the George Floyd protests and, you know, a bunch of other events right now have you know, really limited his ability to do that. And because that's yeah. what drives best is on an energized mm-hmm. base. So we're going to be wrapping up soon. So just any final thoughts about the U S Senate, the races, this mm-hmm. cycle from anyone, yeah, just I any think, final statements. 
I think one of the big things for Republicans, regardless of what happens this cycle, is outside of Alabama, they really haven't done very well in getting more seats to be competitive. I know there was a big hope for Michigan to be competitive with, you know, with uh, John James, who ran a decent campaign in 2018. Uh, but as polling shows, Gary Peters is significantly ahead. And yes, it is the summertime, but yeah, right now it looks like Gary Peters would win. And that really takes away their only opportunity outside of Alabama. Mm-hmm. Case, that might be, yeah. come back to haunt them. It's been frankly appalling is the bit has been the recruiting in Clinton States. Um, mm-hmm. Minnesota is a state that they should have significantly been targeting. And instead they get kind of a D tier recruit in Jason Lewis, who yeah. was a candidate that lost in 2018. They don't even have a credible candidate in New Hampshire. Their best of the of the blue straight recruits is probably oddly enough in New Mexico, and it's not going to yeah, matter because, because it's New Mexico. Like uh, he's not a horrible candidate. I saw Republicans like Joe Ray Perkins in Oregon. Yeah, yeah, it's just been completely. It's been really horrible recruiting for them in these blue states where they should have been. Even on the House close. level as well, like yeah. we talked about earlier, some of their House recruits mm-hmm. been. It just mm-hmm. makes me think that Republicans, if Biden wins, are going to hit it out of the park in 2022 with like excellent. Yeah, and pull yeah, off yeah what Democrats did in 2018, and they're going to have a good year then. But this year is just looking, frankly, not very good for them. It's kind of you could compare it to the 2008 Senate races to the 2010 Senate races. Obviously, you can't make a direct comparison, but you did have a lot of relatively poor candidates in red states in 2008, like Joel Dykstra against Tim Johnson in South Dakota, and um, as well as Christopher Reed against Tom Harkin in Iowa. So, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. One other race to keep an eye on just before we go off is uh, Kansas. Um, I saw someone just mention this in the chat. Um, It is a race we're keeping an eye on. It ultimately, that race's competitiveness will ultimately determine if Chris Kobach is the nominee. But even then, it's Kansas. Um, It's a very Republican state. Um, We have Kansas at at safe Republican in the presidential race. Um, That's really difficult. That's a really difficult race to win. But we are keeping an eye on it. Yeah. I I think that with respect to Kansas, uh, you need someone. I mean, fundamentally, the western part of the state, you know, specifically the district number one, is way, way, way too Republican. Uh, for uh, to manage a statewide victory with presidential turnout, um, you know, even with uh, someone with you know, frankly, white supremacist leanings like Chris Kobach, um, who already has lost a statewide election for governor, um, I think that Barbara Bollier is definitely a very strong candidate for Democrats, but I don't think that she would immediately become uh, favored if. Kobach was the nominee. She'd have a fighting shot, but yeah. it would still be an uphill climb for her because the the Kansas City suburbs aren't as blue as they need to be to counteract all of those red votes mm-hmm. out in the western part of the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, we, continue. Sorry about that. I was going to say, and with respect to the other Senate races, I think that you know some of the, there's going to be some discrepancies between the presidential margins in the individual states, and you know how Senate candidates do. I mean, it's very possible that, uh, you know, it's not likely, but it is possible that, you know, Trump wins North Carolina narrowly and Cunningham edges it out by a point or two points. Or, I mean, Gary Peters could significantly outperform Biden in the rest of Michigan and things like that. So, um, I mean, the only, the presidential margins, I think, are only really indicative in, uh, in states like the Deep South where you know voting is extremely inelastic so i mean alabama it's been said you know thousands of times that doug jones has virtually no path to re-election 
I mean, Georgia depends on Biden carrying the state. South Carolina depends on Biden carrying the state, which he probably very likely will not. Um, and I mean, the same goes for Mississippi and all of that. I mean, Texas is, you know, I can't believe I'm saying this, but, you know, there's a legitimate shot of Joe Biden actually carrying it, which uh, I mean, but even then, John Cornyn is still popular in MJ. Yeah, Hagar that's another example as, of how tickets would be split. Yeah, mm -hmm. MJ Hagar is not, you know, a better tier candidate in terms of getting people to uh, vote out, vote for Democrats. So, yeah. yeah. And he's not just popular in the rural areas. He's popular in the suburban areas where you need yeah. to outperform. Like that's right. his, that's mean, his Texas, unique advantages. He's very popular in, in Houston, uh, Dallas, yeah. San Antonio, places that Republicans have been slipping in lately. I, I mean, the thing about yeah. Texas is that it isn't really a rural state anymore like it was mm -hmm. in the 90s and 2000s. I mean, the bulk of the – I mean, the GOP can't get any more, more votes from the rural areas because they're all 90% GOP. I mean, the bulk of Texas the state lives in Dallas and Houston. In the, in yeah, I mean, it's yeah, a fundamentally suburban state that's increasingly diverse. And Cornyn is, you know, I mean, he's been in politics for a while and people know him and trust him. So he, mm -hmm. he definitely has a significant advantage. Yeah, I think all your points were valid and I'm really happy to have had you guys all here on the Senate discussion. One thing that I wanted to clarify for real this time was something I misspoke about five times while I was trying to talk about it in my <laughs> presidential section. And I don't know why it was so hard for me to say it correctly. It was literally like a tongue twister because I, I know what I'm trying to say, but I kept saying it wrong. So I wrote it down and now I can read it and not say it wrong. So there, like I said, 1876, 1888, <laughs> 2000 and 2016 were all elections the Democrat won the popular vote but lost the Electoral College, therefore not becoming president. And I exclude 1824 from this list because uh, even though the eventual winner didn't win the popular vote, no one won the Electoral College there, so it doesn't really count because it was decided in the House. But one thing that I tried to say over and over, which is kind of like the inverse, is when it comes to Republicans winning presidential elections, there has never been an election where the Republican won the popular vote, but lost the Electoral College. <laughs> so we just had to straighten, we just had to straighten that out because each time it's happened, it's always been a Democrat winning the popular mm -hmm. vote, but losing the Electoral College. And and it, I don't think it's going to happen in 2020 because Biden's up by a large amount, but and much it has happened improving. more recently, if you think about it, 2000 to 2016, both elections were the popular vote mm -hmm. winner didn't win the Electoral College in relative close proximity, especially when you think about the fact that it didn't happen for a whole century, the whole 20th century, that all the elections were, were, in, were in line. So I just wanted to clarify that and make sure our viewers know that I'm not insane, that I, I know what I was trying to say and I just couldn't properly say it uh, for some reason. But, but yeah, so thank you guys for coming on our Senate panel. Thank you, hopefully, for being patient with me misspeaking multiple times during that section. And I hope you enjoyed all the other content that was displayed very well and in a very articulate manner. So thank you for watching the report. We hope to have you on next time. And uh, as always, thank you for spending time with Elections Daily. And you guys might miss our election coverage, but soon enough, we're going to be having primary election coverage back, the classic mm -hmm. panel. Also check out Elections mm -hmm. Weekly and all elections content going forward. So mm -hmm. thank and we you. Got a new, yeah, and we got a new special coming out tomorrow, um, mm -hmm. a brief little explanation of congressional race. So. Yep, Eric's running those. So, so thank you guys and goodbye to our panelists.